friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about... And welcome... This is a special episode, the long-promised, well, it was like two weeks ago, I guess that's not that long, the promised (laughs) UMC-UFC throwdown. Two movies enter. Probably no movies come out. Really? Uh, And it's not just two movies. We have a virtual schmore. Turkish board of films of new films for short takes, but and then and then of course the two longer takes. But we're bouncing all over the cinematic dumpster fire <laughs> for you today, folks. And if that doesn't make you want to listen, I don't know what would, unless it was perhaps a description that was less disgusting. But. Uh... By the way, Scott, by the way, that's Scott. I'm Jeff. I got to let you know, um, I just signed us a licensing deal. Really? With with who? We are the official po- podcast for the Peacock. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. Oh, fuck no. Sorry. The Peacock. We're going to be laughing about that for a very long time, folks. So strap yourselves in. I mean, I already just refer to it as the vegetable dick, and I'm not going to stop. <laughs> but that is not why we are here. So first thing I want to mention is I went off on a little UMC excursion of my own because Jeff's in another state. Otherwise, we probably would have done this together. The American Cinematheque at the Egyptian Theater. I would have gone. Oh, I would have gone. On Hollywood Boulevard had a special event celebrating the 40th anniversary of the film Breaking Away. I saw this film when it came out in 1979, and it had a big impact on me. I was a little bit younger, but close enough in age to the characters in the film that it really struck me. And in fact, I remember going to see it maybe three times while it was in the theater, which I had never done with any film at that point, with the exception of Star Wars. And they had gathered together several members of the cast, Dennis Christopher, Daniel Stern, Hart Bachner, and Paul Dooley, who I thought for sure was dead. He's not. He's 91 years old, spry, fit as a fiddle, full of fascinating antique showbiz trivia, and really quite funny and charming. After the film, there was a panel featuring these gentlemen, moderated by Jonah Ray from Mystery Science Theater 3000. Really? Holy shitballs! Even though he's younger than me, he had a similar reaction, apparently, on first seeing the film, and in fact, is such a huge fan of it that when he went to Indiana, he made a side trip to Bloomington just to to swim in the quarry that features. Okay, that's cool. It it, it is cool, except the quarry looked all nice because the movie set designer got to it and they sandblasted off all the graffiti and they dumped in a bunch of chlorine to kill all the algae. 
it's pretty much a swamp now. And it was like a <laughs> it was like a swamp in Indiana in November. He still got in it. Props to him. But I don't think Jonah Ray is going to live to be 91, frankly. I'm just I'm calling his death now from from whatever you catch from a quarry in Indiana. Anyway, when I mentioned on social media that I'd gone to this event, the question I got most from people was, does it still hold up? Because I guess a lot of people like me had not seen it as much as I love the film when I first saw it and when I saw it the second time and the third. I haven't revisited it in the intervening four decades. And I have to say, it holds up amazingly well. In fact, it shows its age in that it's a relic from that whole 70s era of filmmaking, when even something like a teen coming of age comedy meant to be released in the summer could still be about shit. This movie's about shit. It's funny. And it's a it's a character study. But it's also about this town and gown working class versus upwardly mobile. It's very much about the, 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 the economic stratification of our society and it not in a stupid revenge of the nerds sort of way, but in a way like these, oh. these guys are trapped by the circumstances of their birth and the, the economic desperation of this town they've grown up in which has a sort of jewel in the crown in University of Indiana at Bloomington, right in the center where a ton of the granite that's, uh, that was quarried from around it went to build uh, a very nice looking university. And then on the outskirts, it's crappy used car lots and shitty falling apart tar paper houses and the places where the guys who quarried the stone live. It's the, it's the cutters versus cutters versus the frat boys. The cutters. I remember that for, I remember that word now. Right. And actually, the cutters was a word made up for the movie because what the guys who worked in the stone quarries called themselves were stoners. But they felt okay. they felt like that might be misunderstood by the audience. <laughs> in the 70s? No. Yeah. So the film is actually, if anything, the film is more pertinent than perhaps it was even then. And with the exception of one homophobic gag that comes and goes very quickly, the movie completely holds up as far as its its script and certainly as far as its performances and its direction. It's beautifully shot. Uh, it, it, as much as it's in this small town and they don't shy away from what the poorer sections of it look like, poor was relative back then. I mean, working class people could still afford a little house in Bloomington, Indiana. Now it's, it's like poor, poor is poorer now than it used to be. Uh, the, the, the American dream was petering out but it wasn't yet dead in 1979 and the film doesn't shy away from the the social issues it brings up but it also doesn't wallow in them and it's not a message movie by any means it's it's very much a a comedy and very much a character study and they were they were full of a lot of interesting stories everybody in it recognizes that it was the film that put them on the map i mean paul dooley to this day thinks it's the best script he was ever involved with and they made they made an interesting point that stuck with me, which is that it's directed by Peter Yates, a British director, uh, written by Steve Tesich, who was a Yugoslavian immigrant. But it's so true to the working class American experience that it's probably a film that couldn't have been made by an American because we're much too self-conscious about that. We want to believe that we're this uh, egalitarian land of opportunity. And in reality, we're as 
we're as stratified as, as any country in in Europe or elsewhere. So I'll just say this. If you have not seen Breaking Away in a long time, revisit it. It will reward the effort. I will do so. No, when I heard that you had gone to see it, I was somewhat jealous because I remember seeing it at the drive-in when it came out. And I know I haven't seen it since I saw it at the drive-in. But hearing that does make me want to check it out again. Yeah, I think it was only Paul Dooley's second film. I think his first one. First one had been, uh, I think, A Wedding with Robert Altman. And Dennis Christopher had played his son in that, too. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. And in fact, he and Dennis Christopher are still, 40 years later, very close. Yeah, Paul Dooley had a lot of interesting, fun trivia. Uh, for instance, the quarry that figures in the plot was called the Empire Quarry because almost all the granite taken from it went to build the Empire State Building. Wow. Okay. Okay. Well, yesterday? Yeah, it was yesterday. I went to go see It Chapter 2. And, I, I, I was going to um, go see that, uh, as we discussed, but... I lost my nerve at the last minute. I don't know why. Something about it scared me. Not that I would be scared. Maybe that I wouldn't be scared. You would not be scared. Okay. You would not be scared. Um, a full disclosure, the adult portion is my least favorite part of the book. I never cared about the adults. I I, I, I hate the back half of the book. The last, like, hundred pages, just I, just I laugh at. I, remember I, haven't read, I only read the book once, and the end of the book just annoyed me. I didn't even want to watch the miniseries when it came out because I couldn't stand the book that much. Only reason i watched it was because tim curry was playing pennywise oh really and that was yeah that was the only reason i watched it and i have a feeling like a lot of people my generation a lot of my friends watched that for the same reason because they were all rocky horror nerds exactly truly truly that's the only reason why i watched because i i fucking hated that book so i walked into this with a couple of major strikes against it but i thought it's the same director and i really really enjoyed the adaption uh the the, the, chapter one so i was like all right let's see what they do and while it had a couple of really really good moments and bill Hader is is phenomenal in it i've heard that i've heard he's the stand he is he is the standout of of the adult cast he is he is amazing in it and it's i'll i'll go into this another time because we have other movies to discuss but there's actually one his whole arc kind of disappointed me as good as he is in the film his arc the way they did it really disappointed me and that's kind of when how i felt watching the entire film i walked out disappointed it had some great moments but overall it felt three hours oh that's not good there were a couple of times where i think i almost nodded off (laughs) i don't think i actually fell asleep because i don't think i missed anything but there were a couple times where walter was like hey you wake I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm awake. <laughs> I just, my, my will to live has left the theater, but... Uh... Indeed, and the movie relies way, way, way too much on cat scares, even more so than the first one. Oh, more so than the first one? Uh-oh. All, almost all of the scare, quote-unquote scares in it, Chapter 2 are, are the cat scares. Well, I guess I'm not going to go see this at all then. You know, you know the thing that really stopped me? wasn't just that it's gotten very mixed reviews and, and just got one now. I just felt like that scene where the old lady sort of like draws her in, offers her baked goods and tea, and then strips naked and attacks her. I just felt like that would make me miss my grandma too much. I could go for a joke, but I'm not going to. I could go for one, too. Wish I'd had one there. <laughs> but I was just it just it. I, I we both kind of walked out going, damn, the first one was so good. They always say, can they catch lightning in the bottle twice without people really remembering 
how difficult it is to catch lightning in a bottle when you're really more likely to catch a firefly. Yeah, or get struck by lightning. The one meta joke that really, really kind of annoyed me is um, one of the running jokes is that Bill Denbro can't write an ending. Oh, yay. Ha, ha, ha. Yes, exactly. And they and it's what's really funny is Stephen King's even in it. Oh, yeah, that's right. I, I, I read he's, he's got a cameo. I honestly, I did not know, so he popped up, and I was quite surprised. I, I, I was not expecting that. So yeah, every time they made the joke about, you know, Dembro not ending, I'm like, and King's fine with it. That's kind of funny. Okay, good for you. And then it gets to the ending of this movie, and even though it, it does vary differently from the end of the book, which is another reason why I was going, okay, I know they made changes. Maybe they're good changes. All in all, they really weren't. I think it's just the adult section of the story. that I think it just should have ended with the kids. I, I know what he was trying to do. It's just this is the one where one that he missed. This was his misstep. Well, one of his missteps, right. depending on who you talk to. But that is neither here nor there. Well, I'm glad you thoroughly enjoyed uh, Breaking Away. I wish I would have thoroughly enjoyed It Chapter 2. But oh, well. That is in the nature of the UMC. And although I had seen Breaking Away, that is that is within our bailiwick because uh, our original pitch for it was either movies we've never seen before or movies which we haven't seen in a very long time. And I remember there was only one film that we revisited that I worried about, and that was Buckaroo Banzai because I loved it. Oh, right, right, right. And I just had a feeling, oh, is this going to turn out to be like so 80s that it retroactively sucks? Has it acquired suck the way iron acquires rust over time? And uh, no, it did not. And this movie did not. So my, I, I feel like, okay, my taste in movies, whether it's good or not, hasn't changed tremendously. The stuff I, so far that we've seen that I I was first exposed to years ago and now revisit having seen many more movies, I find if I like them then, I'll generally like them now. I'm waiting for that one movie where I think, what the hell was wrong with me? Haven't found it yet, which is good because that's going to be a depressing show. <laughs> yeah, All that's right, going to be let's bad. Move on to the movies. It's, gonna, it's going to happen. I know it's going to happen with me. Too. It didn't fall this week. We have picked for, for our cage match two films <clears throat> One of which I had seen when it came out, and the other which I'd never even heard about until Jeff suggested it. The two films are our tribute to the recently fallen. The first movie is Q, the Winged Serpent from 1982, which we decided to do as a memorial to the recently deceased Larry Cohn, low budget filmmaker, TV creator, just a brilliant guy, in my opinion who did some amazing, enduring stuff on a shoestring. And I really thought this was going to be another one where I, I recoiled from the screen and whimpered, what was I thinking? But let me throw it over to Jeff to set the scene. My first exposure to Larry Cohen was actually, oh, it's alive. Not not the Tommy Kirk one. <laughs> okay. No, not, not the mutant baby one. Uh, uh, no, 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 not the Tommy Kirk one. Yes, the actually the mutant baby one. Um... Way, way, way back when I was a youngin, mother took me over to a friend of hers house, and she had recently acquired one of the called the Star Channel. I do. The not Star stars, Channel? people. Not with a Z. No, the Star Channel, which I believe it, that became. I I think that became the movie channel. I I think so. Yeah. It it became a it became a different um, cable service after a while, but it, it began as the Star Channel, and we were over there, and It's Alive was playing, 
and uh, my mom be she was there they uh, they wanted to watch it i was there she was with me so she said we could watch it and that film scared the living hell out of me i actually oh, really? went behind the couch <laughs> at one point oh yes oh yeah actually it was during the it was during oh, the birth scene right yeah I remember the moment when the baby claws the doctor or the nurse's throat. I can't remember if it's a doctor or a nurse because I have not seen the original in a long, long time. But um, when when the baby just from the from the swaddling clothes just claws out the doctor or nurse's throat, I was behind. I dove <laughs> behind that couch. And when it came out on video cassette, I actually watched the film again. I mean, it's, it, I realized I got more and more of what uh, Larry Cohen was doing. And Larry Cohen had this phenomenal ability to I don't want I don't want to say tackle social issues, but he would he would tack like big themes onto right. Low it's alive films. is really about, in my opinion, anyway. It's a horror movie about a mutant baby, but it's basically about the anxiety. You know, in the old days of extended families. There would be grandma and there would be, you know, your mother-in-law who would be there to help you get through the the difficult early stages, teach you what to do and how to raise the kid. And now sort of middle class parents who live in apartments just sort of get tossed into, into the deep end. And I remember when I saw that movie, I thought it was cool that it seemed to be about that behind the whole mutant baby plot. And it also was a watershed moment for me because I remember afterwards turning to my girlfriend saying, I never want to have kids. And and at that moment, she was okay with it. Uh, what a shocker! And I mean, and of course, the right. stuff was about rampant consumerism. I was already a fan, obviously, of Larry Cohen when Q the Winged Serpent was released in um, 1980. I believe you said 82. Sorry, so I was 12 years old when it came out. Mom took me to the drive-in to see that one, and uh, the I, all I knew about the film when I went to the drive-in to see it was. That it had yes. uh, the guy from Carding. Kung Fu, it had David Carradine, it had Shaft, and it had stop motion animation. And of course, by that point in time, I was already a fan of Ray Harryhausen. So just the idea of a stop motion animation. Right, cool. And of course, I, I knew who Larry Cohen was. So I'm like, Larry Cohen doing a monster movie with this cast. Even as a 12 year old, okay, I am there. So there are two kind of plots that are running concurrent until they combine towards the end. We have two cops played by David Carradine and Shaft who are investigating a series of ritualistic murders. And we have Michael Moriarty, who, and I believe this was his first in of the uh, Larry Cohen, I'm going to be as weird as I possible performances. I think it was, yes. Playing a down on his luck, and I'm going to use the word schlub because that is most appropriate for Michael Moriarty, I believe. Uh, a down on his luck schlub who's kind of a gangster, but not really. He's sort of like a baby driver, and he winds up getting involved in a jewel heist that goes disastrous wrong and he discovers the lair before we get into too much plot let's talk about the characters a little bit more because to me that's the real draw in this film it, it's the rare monster movie where the monster really is the least interesting part of it and it has it has breasts in one scene that's true i don't want to make it seem like this is some you know fiercely independent stubbornly artistic sui generis blow against the uh, the monster movie making machine that is hollywood i mean larry cohen was trying to cash in and and the film is reasonably replete with monster movie tropes i mean there there is a creature there there's there's beasts and blood and breasts so it's you know it's got the joe bob trifecta uh but 
the thing that shocked me about this movie when I saw it and shocked me anew is that the bulk of the movie is fixated on the Michael Moriarty part, which is a character study of this failing small town hood, this ex-con, ex-junkie who's who's desperately trying to go straight but failing and sort of has this code of honor, but it's flexible and fragile when tested. And it's almost like it, it, it's it's like Ed Wood with those five minutes of Bela Lugosi that he grafted onto um, Plan 9 from Outer Space. It's like somebody had, you know, seven minutes of stop motion footage of a monster and said, hey, uh, we have this unfinished creature feature. Uh, let's splice it together with this unfinished John Cassavetes film. And voila. Who is an ass? Who is an asshole? Because we know he's beaten his girlfriend he at has, least once. A lot of character flaws. I, I want to say before we get into too many details that. I have to say, I had a sense of deja vu watching this film, not because I'd seen it before. It had nothing to do with what was on screen, but it was my own reaction to it because it elicited from me then as now almost derisive snorts of amusement that I am yet oddly convinced were deliberate on the part of the director. Oh, absolutely. I'm sorry. My first favorite laugh line here where Michael Moriarty tries to get a job at the bar where his girlfriend played by Candy Clark works and he's going to be a piano player and he does this whatever he, he plays the piano. I won't say whether he's good or not. And his 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 um, job interview, quote unquote, is stopped when the guy who runs the bar turns on the jukebox. And as he, as Michael Moriarty is walking out, he passes David Carradine, early little connection there, who's sitting at the bar. And David Carradine, as he is, as Michael Moriarty is walking by, says, I thought you were pretty good. And Michael Moriarty responds as he walks out with, what the fuck do you know? Yep. As he's leaving, it was just a nice little, There's, it was uh, a nice According little, to oh, the cute. commentary track, and I only heard a little bit of it, The that scene where he goes in is like, we, we meet Michael Moriarty first in a Chinese restaurant with some other hoods who are putting together a job to rob a, a jewelry store. And Michael Moriarty is, he fancies himself a tough negotiator. And this, this comes in later in the film too, and he tries to hold the city hostage, basically. But he says, I'm a wheel man. I don't carry a gun. I don't go inside. These are my terms. And they, they go like, yeah, you haven't worked in like eight months. And he's clearly hungry, literally hungry for the job. And literally hasn't eaten for a while because he's basically snarfing up all the Chinese food. So, yeah, as you mentioned, he's a professional getaway driver for gangsters, but he would really like to transition into cocktail lounge scat singer. And his his singing... His scat singing is the appropriate word. The scene was more or less improvised. He, he just went in, sat down, played some chords sang some shit. There's a cutaway to a German shepherd laying on the floor of the bar who lifts his head and growls a little bit. Yep. And apparently that, yep. the, the dog's reaction was unscripted. Literally, everybody in New York is a critic. That That's a hoot. That's a hoot. And you know what's funny is We'll get we'll get into this later, but that actually kind of ties into I think a connection that Q the Winged Serpent has with our second feature because our two films are actually connected, I believe, which I will get to that right. in a little bit. So, but anyway, back to Q. The, Thank you. You actually gave me a very nice intro to that. That was a very nice way to to set up that connection. Well done, um, Scott. The movie <laughs> itself was made in about eighteen days, and 
that doesn't count the six days prior to that where Cohen basically wrote the script, I assume, under the influence of, of caffeine and whites, because he was in New York to um, direct uh, an Armand DeSante Mike Hammer film called I, the Jury. Oh, oh my God, I remember that movie. In immediate, just before they're about to start principal photography. So Cohen was in New York. He was in a hotel room that had been paid for. Wow. They didn't throw him out. They didn't say, you know, leave and never darken the Big Apple again. So he says, well, as long as I'm here, I'm in New York. The hotel room's paid for. I might as well make a movie. That's, that's the auteur spirit. I actually, I've heard this story. So the, I, the I, have, about, I have heard about, this. That's right. Um, Q that, that interests me is that I'm sure it was written on some speed-fueled binge, but it's very much a written film. The jokes are well-placed. The dialogue is all very much revelatory of the characters. And it feels very natural. I mean, Michael Moriarty is a very good actor, and he was a very naturalistic actor. He was very method. I liked a lot of his performances like this and in Bang the Drum Slowly. He he did a lot of good, very low-key, very naturalistic work. But even an, an actor like David Carradine, who often just tried to get by on smarm or sarcasm is pretty good. He's actually believable. And then you get a bunch of not very attractive, obviously theater actors who are are terrific. Uh, There's really no B-movie, low-budget clunker actors in this film. Everybody in it is really good. And really, except for a couple of, um, as you said, there was one homophobic joke in Breaking Away. There's There are a couple of racist moments yeah, in this I mean, that I was like, uh, ow. Uh, there's, a, there's a story that Michael Moriarty tells to David Carradine's cop when they're waiting to see if the city's going to pay him a million dollars and drop the jewel heist charges against him in exchange for him telling them where the monster's lair is. And it's it's such a casually racist moment that Moriarty chooses not to, doesn't even bother punching it. And Carradine doesn't blink. And and I think this is stuff I heard takes place in a coffee shop. This is stuff I heard from the next booth in many, many a coffee shop when I was living at the same time. So it was very true to life. But he dropped casually drops the N word and a bunch of others, basically in a story about how this black guy taught him to play piano when they were both in the joint. And it was like the best, nicest thing anyone ever did to him. It, it still doesn't stop him from calling the guy the N-word, but... Among other things, there were a couple of drops that I was like, ow, whoa, I haven't heard, I haven't yeah, heard that one in a movie in years, the, man. The language <laughs> in this movie is surprisingly raw. They clearly were not thinking about, oh, well, what if it sells to TV? They were not worried about that at all. Getting back to... No, to, no, especially, I mean, come on, especially when you have the one Sunday there where the camera is like just, just right. on her and breasts for like four minutes. That's also one of the, the scenes that made me realize that while Larry Cohen and God love him does not in any way condescend to the genre he's making. And I think it's because of the point you brought up earlier, because he uses exploitation and, and genre tropes to address somewhat bigger issues, somewhat larger themes. More so he doesn't, than it, just the blood, there's the some directors and the who are talented, Joe Bob. Uh, who, who worked in genre and clearly loathe it. And some of that, that condescending, supercilious attitude leaks through into the film. I never get that with Larry Cohen's films. He he is he enjoys this stuff, but he has a sense of humor about it. And and the scene with the the rooftop sunbather was one of the moments that really made me laugh, because basically the first thing we learn about our mm-hmm. monster is that he's a voyeur who is so murderously aroused by watching a topless woman on a roof spread sea and ski on her naked breasts that he swoops in and gobbles her, leaving nothing behind but a creamy splat 
that I assume is meant to be suntan lotion, but really looks like Quetzalcoatl jizz. And you know, I thought the same damn thing. And, and I, I did. I went there, we too. Everyone in it is good, but kind of ugly. Um, I, I think that's also kind of his, his little joke, because the, the movies that would have been made in this genre a decade prior or in the 50s had all these square-jawed hero leading man types. And Steve McQueen, the absolute ugliest cast. Both, I mean, even though it's '82, they all very much they're older guys who, <laughs> who look like they haven't changed their look from 1974. It's lots of big pores, big pimples, incredibly bad hair. I mean, I mean, both our male leads had the highest foreheads since Vincent Price's egghead on the Batman TV series, and. I really like how Very true. those jolts of reality mixed in with these absurd shenanigans. I mean, I mean, the first kill is a window washer who gets his head bitten off 40 floors up. And, you know, and then we've got the Mexican pterodactyl spooging on Midtown. All that weird, stupid genre stuff feels like it's taking place in, in a gritty version of New York that was lifted whole out of a Scorsese movie or, or a thousand TV crime dramas. My favorite moment in the entire film my absolute favorite moment in the entire film. Now, um, he goes on the heist. He winds up getting the jewels. He, uh, he leaves everybody else right, there, a, but they have the key. So he goes he gets hit by a car. Get away. Jewel- That's another joke. They, he says, I don't go in. I don't carry a gun. They gave him a gun and say, you're going in. So basically our hero is an incredible loser. And, and the film never shies from that. But the joke is that his one contribution is apparently he's a good driver. He, he's he's a getaway driver for a heist, and he winds up fleeing on foot. It's like, could could you fail more, Michael? Even better is when he gets hit, and the 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 uh, case of jewels goes flying. At no point do I think it doesn't even look like he tries to look for them because they go out in the street and right. he starts well, running it, off it, to the phone to say that he lost and them. They were- what looked like a, some Puerto Rican guys lounging around it. And he's he's just been hit by a cab. He's hurt. You can hear police sirens in the background. I just thought, it was, and, I just thought that I was never, funny. It just made me laugh. My the favorite. whole film was just a travelogue. Michael Moriarty is limping past dim sum joints and graffiti in Chinatown. I would be fine with that. I, I like those scenes equally as much as I did the uh, ejaculating smog part. <laughs> but my again my but my favorite moment and i i remembered this from when I, this is the one thing that i remembered all these years since i first saw it the people he did the job with show up and they want the jewels and even though he doesn't have them he says i know where they are and he takes them to the uh nest this nest is in the top that's of what the i thought okay the 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 poor man's empire state and it's, Chrysler building, that's, that's right. That kind of made me snort because I'm thinking like, okay, I know he's not the monster, but after the foiled jewel robbery, in the tradition of monster movie monsters, he flees to the top of a skyscraper. There's no good reason for him to do that other than he needs to be the guy who finds the yes. nest. And the nest, th- that was one moment that co- that made me think that, okay, this is what happens when you've got a competent filmmaker who gives a shit because he was, again, he, he, the three-week shooting schedule didn't have a lot of money. But still, the nest actually is a little awe-inspiring when you see it. It's not like, oh, what is this paper mache piece of crap? Good thing they didn't shoot this on a rainy day. It would have just washed down the drain. And part of it is is Moriarty's acting because he sells the sort of sense of terror and awe. But when you really look at it, I rewound and rewatched it. The nest is made of twigs, branches, and human spines. <laughs> yep. 
And the egg. The egg. Oh, boy. The egg being so huge, dwarfing Michael Moriarty, is such a smart thing for the actor to do because our head immediately fills in with the, what, what size would be required to drop that from your ovipositor. To, to leave something like this, yes. <laughs> but the uh, Moriarty leads leads his 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 quote unquote compatriots to to the building to to the nest, and as the um, his his former compatriots are being eaten, as he is leaving yeah, the building, then, Michael Moriarty is shouting, defense. "Eat him! Well, Eat him up!" And oh know? my god, I fucking love that moment. Self defense. I just he's like, he's like he can't he can't even commit to revenge. He's, he's, <laughs> And when when they're cha- it's weird because he is someone someone described his character as very passive aggressive, and with Candy Clark he when he shows up at her apartment after he's beaten up and in a lot of pain and emotionally distraught he wants a drink and she's going ah oh, you really shouldn't do that and it comes out that he's a that he's a former junkie so it's like oh, okay so he's got substance abuse problems like they they didn't want to make him as big a monster as the monster but he's got plenty of really unappealing qualities and yet he's fascinating to watch there's something about him that makes you kind of enormous assholes too i mean richard roundtree just browbeats and threatens him and moriarty says something that's interesting in the again from from the perspective of 40 years because and you black cops are as bad as the white ones and roundtree goes yeah no you got no idea so yeah you know <laughs> But one of the one of the things that I, I I think is so cool about this movie, and this is this is where this is what I think what I think Cohen was doing with this is it really is oh, well it, it's not absolutely. talking about and consumerism I'm, or being a parent in a trying time. This really is a character study. Don't want to go into too much detail because honestly, seek this one out. You can find it very easily. It is very he, well worth watching. Another interesting thing about him is he's clearly a guy who does not thrive outside the joint without saying it, because this is a little too self-actualized for the era. But he basically says, I I make a series of bad decisions. If somebody asks you, what do you do? I make bad decisions. That's my life. But and then she goes to see him in the in the police department thinking, maybe I can bail you out. Do Do you need me to call your lawyer? Whatever enabling stuff that their relationship is founded on. And he's very full of himself at that point because he has this information. And all he thinks about is, what can I get out of it? I can get off scot-free for the jewelry job. I want amnesty. Right. I want a million savvy. dollars. I want, I want, I want the right to I want to be on all. I want to be on all the, the talk shows. Out. I want the negatives. I want to, I want to control. You know, it's like, oh, wow. It's like yep. George Lucas negotiating with Fox over Star Wars. And she's listening to this and all, and he's so excited because it goes, oh, I'm going to be rich. Life's going to turn around. Finally, this is my time. And she's going, a, a guy got killed today. How long have you known this? What if someone gets killed tomorrow while you're holding out for more money? She goes, just do the right thing. I mean, it's like the minimum amount necessary to maintain your, your membership and good standing in the human race. And later when she when she confronts him and they break up she she basically it's not even it's not the fact that he had hit her in the past it's not the fact that he's a, a fuck up and a failure because she knew that going in she she goes it's it's not that what you're like when you're down she said i saw you when you you had a little power it wasn't pretty and that i don't like you an informative moment when people are on top that's often when they're, they're at their worst not when they're backed against the wall but when they think they have an advantage. The movie is full of interesting little minor, but still intriguing psychological insights that you do not typically find in a, a, a film like this. Any of Larry Cohen's films should be watched. 
It's a very good print on Amazon. And you can also find it on YouTube, but... If you have Amazon Prime, go Amazon Prime. I got you know the, the print the print on the print on YouTube was not bad, but I can imagine the Amazon Prime print was better. Now then, we to, okay, we will do the uh, fascinating, the, irritating. You go first on this one. With the proviso that that I really do enjoy this film, it was almost as entertaining this time around as it was when I I first saw it. The irritating thing is actually something that I liked about the movie, which I, I think is a UMC fascinating, irritating first. It was a low-budget quickie, and and Cohn, as Indeed. he want, threw in a lot of little details to make his non-monster scenes, which are the vast percentage of the movie, interesting or just quirky enough to keep the, the viewer's attention, like the undercover cop in mime makeup, which is a decision you could almost hear him making. It's like, well, it's a boring scene of a guy reporting surveillance on a payphone. How do we spice that up? I know. Make the cop look like he divides his time between stakeouts and appearing as a chorus boy in Godspell. It takes, it, it takes me out of the movie, but I appreciate the effort. Yeah. Um, in, in keeping with the, the, the irritating thing, there there's very little monster in the movie. But you know what? That's probably for the best because it's it's just an okay stop motion creature. And I have a feeling like if the giant claw had shown similar restraint, the finished film might not have driven star Jeff Morrow to tears. Yes, it would that, that leads me to the fascinating, which usually doesn't tie into the irritating. In this case, it does. Because the thing that struck me in 82 and still struck me this time is that the movie works almost as well without the monster. I mean, it wouldn't have made as much money at the box office without that Boris Vallejo dragon in the poster. And, and the funny thing is, he got fired off I, the jury, scrambled to, to throw uh, a pittance together to make this movie. They were released almost head to head. I, the jury, sank like a rock. And this thing made a fair amount of money. That's right. Yeah, and this was fun. And uh, take the same basic plot. There's a rash of gruesome killings in New York. A small-time hood finds out the killer's identity and hideout and tries to extort clemency and cash out of the cops in exchange for this information. Now, if you just took that basic plot, you could still make a cool little film, especially with Michael Moriarty playing the role. I mean, it doesn't have to be a dragon. I mean, his scenes are great. and I. But the funny thing is, I don't think he's ever in the same scene with the monster. No. David Carradine is, but Michael Moriarty is off in his own little B-flip side Scorsese film. So that I find fascinating. It's It also <laughs> is a little irritating because the two movies are so different, the creature feature and the, and the character study, that they don't really blend. And the subplot about the, the Aztec revivalists who, who put on uh, a, a feathered cape and a, and a jaguar mask and sacrifice willing victims to to reawaken Quetzalcoatl. It's like, okay, who are all these middle-aged white guys who are in this Quetzalcoatl cult and really excited about getting flayed? See, that's the, the you led right directly into my irritating thing because they really do absolutely nothing with that at all. Uh, so, but that that whole ass, like basically the the resolution of the cop plot line is really kind of there is no resolution to it per se, or when it comes, it's very very fast with no explanation whatsoever or backstory really, except for who for what Quetzalcoatl is. So, I mean, I that there could have been there could have been a little more in there, but I honestly don't think that was yeah, that is the, what interested the, him. 
to give David Carradine an excuse to go talk to a series of uh, curators and professors to give him the backstory about the monster. So it's not just a generic dinosaur. It's this actual mythic creature. Yes. So, I mean, I, I definitely I definitely think that 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 could have that plot line could have been handled a, a, a little better. Now, my fascinating thing <clears throat> is actually <laughs> something <clears throat> that we have. <clears throat> excuse me. I, I have a I have a Quetzalcoatl stuck in my throat is something that we mentioned earlier. And this is also how it ties into our next film. You're going to like this. Yes. I love the the naturalism of the dialogue and you're going to love this segue scott it almost it almost feels i, we I know see where you're going i see where you're going scripts, with this but it almost <laughs> feels like there isn't a script I, I i knew you would i knew you would it almost feels like there isn't a script even though that even though there obviously our next is movie. what's our next film <laughs> In recognition of the recent passing to Peter Fonda, uh, we thought we would do a genre new to the Slim Lion, but uh, familiar to fans of Mr. Fonda, the biker flick. And to fully honor his contribution to American film, we're doing a biker flick that he's not actually in, because most of those things suck, and why speak ill of the dead? Why piss on the dead if you don't have to? However, but... the kind of person who likes the smell of urinal cakes and corpses when you pee, there is plenty of dead to piss on in this film. We are seeing... Urinal cakes and corpses. Our second feature is The Rebel Rousers, made in 1967 and then put on a shelf and left to rot. Unfortunately, it proved not to be biodegradable, and they had no choice but to release it upon an unwary world in 1970. The film was written and directed by Martin B. Cohen, very much not Larry Cohen, perhaps the opposite Cohen, the polar opposite. Ten years the anti Cohen. The Anti-Cohen. Thank you. This is his only credited film as a director, although he wrote and produced the 1980 Humanoids from the Deep. And for more on Humanoids from the Deep, see the weird sex chapter in Better Living Through Bad Movies and get ready for a bunch of fish stick and tartar sauce jokes. We're just tying our things wow. together. Hey, wow, you tied stuff Scott. together. Wow. <laughs> you whore. I, I have studied at your feet. For I was going to say, I thought I was a whore. Well done. Well played, sir. Well played. All right. Cameron Mitchell gets top billing in this mess. <laughs> Fo- Continue, sir. Followed, followed by Bruce Dern and Diane Ladd, only one of which is typically cast as a psychopathic, super violent scumbag. I won't ruin the surprise by telling you which one. Uh, further down the co-starring ghetto, we see Oscar winner Jack Nicholson and Dean later to become Harry Dean Stanton. This is perhaps the biggest waste of soon-to-be high-priced talent of any movie we've ever done. And that is honestly the reason why I, why I, I brought this film to Scott. Oh, the last co-starring credit. Uh, there's uh, Cameron Mitchell, Bruce Dern, Diane Ladd, Jack Nicholson, Harry Dean Stanton, quote, and the townspeople of Chloride, Arizona, unquote. The good people. No, they don't specify their goodness. Now, this thing starts the way these things always start. Bruce Dern and his gang of scumbags pull into a one-horse desert town with a one-room schoolhouse, uh, literally a one-room sheriff's department, and what appears to be the car from Christine in a well-received cameo. You, you noticed that too, didn't you? First, yep, what the yep. fuck? Okay, so, so far, so bad. Typical uh, biker stuff. Uh, the first really weird thing that happens is... Bruce Dern spots Cameron Mitchell getting out of a car 
and says, hey, don't I know you? And it turns out that according to the film, they played high school football together in L.A. But since Cameron Mitchell was born in 1918 and Bruce Dern in 1936, I'm guessing Cameron got held back a few times. So Cameron goes to the world's most depressing motel and finds his wife staying in his regular room. But there seems to be something fishy going on between them. Also, the motel features a chatty minor bird that vocalizes without moving its beak. So apparently the town is built around the avian ventriloquist industry. It doesn't seem to be anything else going on. And as we said, Cameron's wife is played by Academy Award nominated actor Diane Ladd, the mother of Laura Dern and at the time uh, freshly divorced from husband Bruce Dern. So, you know, fun times around the craft service table on that shoot, I'm betting. No, remember, they are not married because there's a whole conversation Uh, about they should get married. Oh, that's right. Yes. No, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Uh, He calls her his wife for the benefit of the motel clerk and the minor bird, apparently. Uh, But they're not married. And this becomes a, a, a crucial source of almost unending boredom as the movie goes on. So stick with us. That's true. Okay, point taken. So the clerk tells Cameron that uh, his wife is waiting for him in his room and Cameron looks confused, which is very exciting for us uh, as the audience because it's it's the first and uh, almost the last time in the film where he uses a facial expression. So, you know, basically enjoy it, but don't get used to it. Uh, the room is empty when he gets there, but he finds a new a new baby cradle and weeps into its plastic wrap. By the way, I'd just like to say this about Cameron Mitchell in this film. He's got the weirdest haircut. It's like not quite a crew cut, but it's cut so close to his scalp that it looks like it's painted on the way my G.I. Joe's hair was. Oh, he's an architect, we're supposed to believe, even though apparently he's an idiot who who took 18 years to get through high school. Um, meanwhile, the Rebel Rousers, and, and as we mentioned, this group includes yes. Jack Nicholson as Bunny. Jack Nicholson is Bunny. Wearing the best zebra pants I've ever seen. They are really splendid zebra pants. Uh, The Rebel Rousers are having a bacchanalia in the one-room bar house with the good townsfolk of Chloride, Arizona. All of them over the age of 60, I believe. Yes. At least in the bar. Yeah, but I mean, every single biker film has that one scene where they all, you know, get hopped up. They take Coke or they smoke pot or they get drunk on skunky beer and you figure... You know, they, they really oh, yeah. get disgusting. This is the mildest bacchanalia. I mean, beers are drunk. Checkers are played. And really the worst, the, the wildest, the most depraved thing that happens is somebody's mom gets up in the bar and does the most uncomfortable striptease since Irene Cara in fame. But other than that, it's really a tame night out in Chloride, Arizona. Now, you know, it's not a bar. I'm sorry. It's a cantina. They, they go out of their way to to sell the um, Mexican-American flavor that, yes. of the town and, and its people. Because everybody in town has names like but, Pedro and Manuel and Nino. Yeah, they don't actually go uh, so far as to cast Latinx actors in the Mexican-American roles. But certainly the darker shades of pancake in the makeup artist kit gets a workout. So anyway, the cantina owner gets on one of those old-timey crank-up telephones and asks Sarah to give her mount pilot and then complains about the biker orgy to Mexican Sheriff Andy Taylor, who's played by an actor who doesn't appear to be Mexican-American. 
but who figures he can get away with it because he bribed the soundtrack to blast mariachi music every time the camera cuts to him. I mean, you're listening to this actor's horrendous Hispanic accent and looking at his minstrel show makeup and thinking, this guy's not Mexican-American. You can't fool me. Wait, wait, no. I hear the Mexican hat dance. Oh, okay, my mistake. Oh, and speaking of the sheriff, the role of uh, Mexican-American Barney Fife, usually played by, I don't know, Cantin Floss, for this performance will be played by 99 Cent Store Sydney Greenstreet. With a Mexican accent he apparently got by losing a bet. <laughs> you mean Sydney Green Avenue. Verde. Sydney Verde. Verde Calle. Oh, Blanche is going to hear this and just smack me for my... Verde Calle. There we go. Um, <laughs> So Diane Ladd, who is super pregnant when we finally see her, I mean, ready to pop. Bun is burning in that oven. She goes back to the hotel and finds Cameron. Uh, We discover she's not his wife. Uh, They were just having an affair and uh, he wanted her to get an abortion, which in 1967, uh, I don't know. I think that was legal in California under certain circumstances, but he might be talking about an illegal dangerous uh, procedure. They don't really get into that because she loves this baby. She wants this baby. So she sits there in his motel room, slugging down a double scotch while he sits behind her smoking like a steel mill. I have a feeling this, this was exactly how my mother got through her pregnancy. So meanwhile, the rebel rousers are kicked out of the cantina. Oh, and I do want to, I do want to interject real fast just to let our dear listeners know that more time in the in this first section before the these two concurrent plot before these two concurrent plot lines meet, you spend a lot of time with Diane Ladd and Cameron. Um, I don't want to call him Cameron McIntosh for God help me. And all I could think of was, especially as I was watching it, was going, yeah, they're, they're "What the fuck movie. does this have to do with the Rebel Rousers? Why are we watching these no. two?" Exactly. The, these two bougie dopes with their cocktails and their general hospital problems do not belong in this biker film. And and as you say, when the, the two plots finally meet, they don't actually converge. They sort of sideswipe each other. A- a- anyway, to kickstart the plot, and it's, let's face it, we're getting deep into the movie, waiting for something to happen. So they, they get kicked out of the cantina, um, I, I assume for trying to get the barkeep to serve their droids. And in the tradition of violent, half-crazy, homicidal bikers from time immemorial, they uh, meekly uh, agree to vacate the premises in an orderly manner. Because Pedro, because Pedro yes, and they, um, yes, they what's his name, Verde Calle, show up with their little pistoles and say, get out. Which in any other movie would be the signal for a chair-smashing, pool-cue-breaking, shiv-wielding Donnybrook they would trash the bar, but that's not what the rebel rousers are about, at least not under the um, Bruce Dern administration, because Bruce is really, he's in it more for the companionship, for the camaraderie, for the friendship. I mean, he's, he's so thrilled beyond all rational comprehension to renew acquaintance with his old high school football buddy, Cameron Mitchell. And it, it seems like the, the gang isn't there to bust up the town. They're they just like doing stuff together. They're basically the first dirtbag biker gang to operate on the uh, friendship is magic principles of My Little Pony. He has again. This this ties in with uh, Q. The wing he's wing. made a series of and bad he decisions. Just, he's not really 
he's not violent. I don't know why he's in charge of this group. I don't know why they follow him. In fact, as as the movie cranks on, they begin to wonder why they're following him because he really doesn't seem to have the kind of manic, uh, murderous energy that the leader of a biker group ought to have, at least to keep the movie interesting. But uh, he says, he says, yeah, let's just leave. And instead, they ride out to the, they ride out to the beach. Now, this is our first hint that the film, and spoiler alert, folks, this film takes place on Earth X. This is just like our Earth, except the Nazis won World War II, and the Pacific Ocean is in the middle of Arizona. <laughs> Now, you mentioned that the mo- the other movie is having a hard time yes. going and having anything to do with bikers. This part of the movie agrees with you. And this part of the movie is going to make it worse. Because back at the motel, Diane goes for an Oscar in a speech about her bones and her flesh creating new life. And I am not kidding. And I am not exaggerating. As she delivers this speech, out of literally nowhere, a lush orchestra Strikes not. up. Diane gazes at the ceiling, and I'm sure both she and I are convinced she's about to break into song. I I was I, I thought that. Yeah. And I mean it's not even surprising. It's nineteen sixty-seven. I mean, if you could have a a visibly drunken Dean Martin singing That's Amore on TV, then you can have a visibly pregnant Diane Ladd and I suppose Cameron Mitchell singing That's Abortion. Fortunately, Cameron realizes it's it's 1970 or whatever. Uh, so uh, he tables the abortion idea and says, let's go back to L.A., get married and have this baby properly. And I, I don't I don't know what that means. I guess she was planning to have it anally or cough it up like a hairball. I have, I have no idea. But anyway, thank you for that image, Scott. You're welcome. Um, you know what? If Diane had taken this off, just all a lot of time and trouble. But she's she's still trying to get that musical number off the ground, and she refuses. So he goes to the window and smokes, while she emits a squeak like a poorly lubricated ceiling fan, holds her glass of whiskey under her nose, and proceeds to literally cry into her drink. In a gesture which, to me, suggests that even in the new Hollywood, with the Stanislavski method ascendant, there's still room for some good old-fashioned silent film acting. So at this point, we cut to the church, which is a whitewashed adobe with a fake cross and the word church painted over the door. I kept looking for a the. I was um, hoping it said the church, but it didn't. Is, yeah, uh, uh, apparently uh, this is Our Lady of Great Value store brand. Every bit as holy as your national brand Catholic church, but pennies cheaper. Um, Sheriff Mexican Andy Taylor is talking with the priest, who's dressed like he was recruited from the drunk history version of The Name of the Rose. And is blind, I believe. Uh, No, I think he just didn't know where to look. He was trying so hard not to look at the camera. Oh, okay. All right. I accept that. I'm going to guess. And in the middle of their conversation, uh, the sheriff decides to go arrest some guy in some other town hundreds of miles away because aside from the violent gang of psychopathic bikers besieging the town, there's really nothing going on. And at this point, we cut to scenes of our deranged screaming bikers frolicking on the beach like beauty pageant contestants in Atlantic City. There's not a single guy that gets brained with a tire iron. I, I the, they're frolicking. It's like, have you none of you guys ever seen a biker movie? I mean, granted, this they're was frolicking. Before, uh, Jack Nicholson was in. Well, two years before Jack Nicholson was an easy rider. But you'd think he'd have seen one. But the gang, obviously, they're, they're still smarting from their ejection from uh, Mos Eisley. 
And they all have a falling out and, and half the filthy scumbags go for a stroll to take personal inventory and work out their feelings because... You know, when you're when you're too scummy for a notorious hive of scum and villainy, maybe you've hit peak scum, and it's time to look for new challenges. Maybe you've made some bad life decisions. Maybe you have. Now we get to the most perplexing scene in this film. We cut to Cameron and Diane, who have left the motel room. Now that they're good and liquored up, they go for a drive, and they, they park on a bluff overlooking the Arizona Sea. And they have a long, and I mean long... <laughs> long, longer, longest conversation about her pregnancy, which I thought we dealt long, with five long, ago, but long. why she won't marry him and the importance of upholding traditional values, even in a time of rapidly changing social mores. Parents it's a long scene. I'm going to make it on my own. The, the thing is, while they're having this long conversation about these issues, I... <laughs> It made me wonder how the teenage drive-in audiences came to this thing, expecting to see people hitting each other in the face with a tire iron, felt about the filmmakers editing 10-minute chunks of one life to live into their biker flick. This was for the necking. I guess, but I can't think of anything less sexy middle-aged people having a boring discussion about their love life. I just can't... I. I mean, now that you say it, yeah, it makes perfect sense that uh, they'd be sitting in their car going, well, there's no watching this. Uh, Let's have unsanctioned intercourse like they did. I'm sure that nine months later, after this film was released, there was a phenomenal number of Rebel Rousers babies being born in America. But the scumbags, violent and wired on that most dangerous of all drugs marijuana we we see them smoking a joint and and uh freaking out so apparently oh. nobody made this movie had seen a biker flick but they all saw reefer madness they attack the car they smash the window they terrorize the couple although i have to say only diane bothers to act terrified uh C- cameron smokes and watches the scene and acts like he doesn't know he's in the frame Tyler i think Potter. he's i think he's, he's watching like, diane lad eat the, the back of her hand because Diane Ladd continues her silent movie acting in this by by with the with the yeah, classic hand to mouth. Fortunately, Bruce again, who who proves his complete unfitness as a biker gang leader, intervenes and he, and he orders the stoned scumbags to repair the car uh, and invites the half terrorized couple down to do drugs on the beach. But you know, Diane is pregnant, so she just. She just guzzles a Pap's Blue Ribbon. However, when she declines their offer to go skinny dipping, two of the scumbags flip out and uh, decide to kick the shit out of Cameron, who still doesn't visibly react. Hey, that's okay, because it doesn't look like they are yeah. actually physically they, attacking I, Cameron. You know, maybe, Mitchell. Maybe I've heard, heard of pulling punches before, but this is ridiculous, maybe, maybe folks. They, I don't know. It either Yeah, it's either, again, Cameron didn't know he was in the scene and was supposed to be getting beaten up, or this is just the kind of treatment he's used to from his co-stars. However, at this, uh, at this point, we actually do get our first genuine, legitimate, dyed-in-the-wool, triple-ply plot point from a biker film, because Jack Nicholson wants to have sex with the hugely pregnant Diane. Because I guess by this point, they've realized the biker film's just not happening. So, you know, why not try to salvage the day by making a Japanese fetish porn? Diane, understandably, is not into this plot twist. And she begs Cameron for help. But he just lies there motionless. Now, 
again, it's probably not because the beating rendered him unconscious, because as you point out, everybody's whiffing and getting nowhere near him. So my theory is uh, his check hadn't cleared and he just refuses to move until it does. No comment. (laughs) Now, once again, uh, Bruce shows remarkable sensitivity for a dirtbag biker and intervenes not to stop it necessarily, but just to make the impending rape more sporting, I guess. He proposes they have a series of elimination races with the winner claiming Diane, but he has a secret agenda because while they're they're conducting their wacky rape races, uh, uh, there there is something with Dirk Dastardly we never wanted to see. Oh man, my head's gonna hurt after this. One. Dirk Dastardly uh, and Muttley in a way you've never seen yeah, them so, before. Uh, I mean, basically he's stalling. And while he's stalling, the bank apparently calls Cameron to say the check hit his account. So he opens his eyes and starts acting again, at least as as much as he has. And granted, he starts slow, but, you know, hey, I didn't pay $1.50 at the drive-in, plus another 25 cents for my date and 75 cents for popcorn and an orange crush, just to see some washed-up TV actor overdo it and get a cramp. Fine. Warm up. Ease into it, Cameron. Um, At this point, we cut to the racing rapists. They're tearing up and down the beach while enjoying the dramatic views of Catalina and the Channel Islands that uh, Arizona is so justly famous for. Meanwhile, Cameron is struggling up the bluffs because I guess he's just decided to leave, which kind of pisses me off. One, because his girlfriend's still there at their mercies. And two, I thought of that first. I thought of leaving this piece of shit movie like an hour ago. Because you see, Cameron leaves, leaves his poor soon-to-be-raped uh, girlfriend, maybe wife. Going doesn't even help. talk to her. He just gets but, up and walks um, off. Two of the scumbags who are not currently racing spot him and give chase. But Cameron gets away when one of them does the biker equivalent of the girl in a monster film breaking her heel and falling down. So Bruce's plan was he yep. would win the race and then she'd be fine. But he loses the race. Again, because he's not a good leader. Oh, and let us let us let us not forget that um, before he loses the race, when he is explaining his in-depth plan to Diane Ladd, we discover and Diane Ladd learns that yep. he is trustworthy uh, and he's an okay guy. He's just made a few bad life choices. Yes, that's right. They have a a, a big music swelling scene too, full of uh, tender confession and utter boredom. Meanwhile, Cameron makes it to the sheriff's office and seeks help from uh, Deputado Barney Calle Verde. But uh, Sheriff uh, Mexican-American Andy Taylor only lets him have one bullet. And there's like uh, seven bikers. So so he refuses to help. Cameron begs the deputy to give him a weapon. And this was my favorite part of the movie. I'm not going to lie. He reaches the passionate peak of his performance on the line. It's for a baby. It's for a baby. Give me a gun. All right, was that written? When Jeff and I were talking about this earlier, uh, he had a theory that none of this was written. I am absolutely convinced that the scenes between Cameron Mitchell and Diane Ladd were written, just not for this movie. But I I agree that that the biker stuff all seems improvised, that they just went out with a camera and didn't really have much of a plot, certainly didn't have any dialogue. And if that's the case, it was a big mistake because it's a terrible improv exercise. They they all talk all over each other. They're, it's hard to understand what anyone's saying. Uh, and when you can, they're just speaking in circles. Nothing advances the plot, which probably explains why they can't remember if their dirtbag biker is out in the middle of the desert or frolicking on the beach. Actually, actually, you know what? That might explain it. Maybe it's Eric Von Zipper's gang. Maybe they're, maybe they're the bikers from Beach Blanket Bingo. Uh, Cameron doesn't get a gun. Even though it's for a baby, 
and he's so crazed with rage and grief that he condemns the chatty minor bird from the first scene to hell. I mean, he condemns his friend, the motel clerk, who refuses to help him also. But I don't know why he dragged the bird in. The bird doesn't even appear to have a gun for pediatric purposes or otherwise. Although the bird uh, does have an unexpected ventriloquist career, so you never know. Maybe he shoots out TVs in his spare time like Elvis, or you know, he's one of those drunken has-beens who has a writer in his contract when he appears in Branson that there's got to be you know, green M&Ms, a six-pack of Lone Star, and a three fifty-seven Magnum in his dressing room, or he won't come out on stage. Uh, anyway, where were we? Because he goes, he goes everywhere. He goes to he goes to the bar to ask for help. It's, he goes to the monk to ask for help. He asks a random person that pulls up in a truck for help, and nobody will help him. Uh, which is probably why they weren't billed as the good people of Chloride, Arizona. In fact, these are probably the same people uh, from that town that uh, Gary Cooper was marshal of in High Noon. And eventually yes, he winds up in the street going, damn you all to hell, it's for a baby. And damn your bird. Damn your ventriloquist bird. And, you know, not to get obsessed with the ventriloquist bird angle, but the mind does wander during this film. And, and I couldn't help thinking that if this had been a more popular picture, it might have sparked a, a kind of cultural revolution in America in, in which we, um, you know, as a people with one voice, condemned ventriloquist to hell. I, I'm fine with Paul Winchell, say, but uh, if we wanted to um, strip and shear Jeff Dunham and follow him through the streets, ringing a bell, screaming shame in unison, I, I, could, get, I could get down with that. Hashtag jokes no one gets. Make it trend, people. Fortunately, a helpful young boy, Nino, Nino, the right. the boy we saw earlier who had been who had been harassed right, by yeah. the, the bikers. You're right. I had completely forgotten that because uh, something being introduced earlier in the film and then paying off later. I mean, what, what are the odds of that happening in, in this piece of crap? But you're absolutely right. Nino helps him prevent the uh, desperation of his pregnant girlfriend by taking him to a birthday party. Where there's 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 a large group of people who would like you to believe they are Latino. Uh, in fact, they're they're so committed to it that they're they are literally wearing sombreros and hopping around to the Mexican hat dance. Meanwhile, a girl in a peasant blouse delivers tacos to the beach for, for reasons that are unclear. The bi- the bikers order tacos. I guess. I guess. Uh, I don't know how they are. Because when you're on the yes. when you're on the Arizona I, I, Ocean, was, you want was, tacos. Was there a um, was there a payphone at, at, at the at the beach? I just just seemed like there were a bunch of a bunch of uh, half-assed rapists <laughs> with no script. But okay. Um, meanwhile, Jack, Jack Nicholson has has won the the rape race. But Bruce further stalls him by conducting a mock wedding ceremony by reading from the scumbag's Bible the text of the Harley Davidson maintenance manual. And this is the only part of the movie I liked, because it turns out that if you read the Harley Davidson maintenance manual in a really, really sexy voice, especially the parts about proper lubrication, the manual does sound kind of dirty. I agree. That was was funny. That was pretty entertaining. Anyway, uh, hang in with us. Guys, we're almost there. We're, We're literally, we can see the end from here. So the birthday party alerted by Nino and the increasingly irrelevant and useless Cameron decides to help. Finally, some people in this town who are going to help. The birthday boy snatches up a pitchfork. He rouses the other villagers and they all troop down to the beach 
to liberate the two women. The scumbags released the taco delivery girl, but Jack feels like he won Diane fair and square. And then suddenly, and I'm not kidding, there's a blast of Batman fight music. <laughs> and he and Bruce are wrestling around on the sand. I mean, it's it's not exactly the Alan Bates, Oliver Reed nude wrestling scene from Women in Love. but But it's close. Yeah, but it does remind me a lot of West Side Story when Jack falls on his knife. Yeah, I mean, the, the villagers leave a taco girl, but but they pause and they look back at Cameron, And then who gives it's them. over. Right, exactly. The film gets resolved with almost zero input from our uh, ostensible hero. In fact, Cameron doesn't even say thank you, but he he does look at the birthday boy and, and give him kind of a curt, manly nod that seems to say, you may be fake Mexicans, but you're genuine heroes. Uh, then the scumbags uh, go gather around Jack's corpse while Bruce sits alone with the surf roaring behind him. And Diane says, can we help you? But Bruce decides that, you know what? He doesn't need a motorcycle gang to be a scumbag. He can make it on his own. And, and isn't that what life is all about? Yeah, he's decided yeah. he's going to go run a greenhouse in outer space. Hashtag jokes no one gets. Oh, believe me, some of our listeners will get that joke. Okay, a, a few of our listeners, yeah, some of our listeners will get that one. But yeah, this movie, holy fuck, this movie, I, I cannot, I, we've been, we've been joking about it and kind of the connection on, on the no script, but I truly believe that there was no script for this thing. I think they had a quote unquote plot. Like I said, I, I agree with you. I, I, I think the biker stuff was all improvised, but definitely the Cameron Mitchell, Diane Ladd, baby subplot thing. That was all heavily, exhaustively, crushingly scripted. Oh, very true. That's okay. You have a point. I think someone had a script, a, a lacrimose tearjerker about these two middle-aged people struggling with whether or not to have a baby or make a late life commitment or whatever. And they went to producers and said, yeah, I'm not going to give you money for that. But if you want to throw in some bikers, and uh, they say, yeah, yeah, sure, of course. And they just never bothered to write the biker half. That makes a lot of sense, Scott. That makes a lot of sense because it really does feel like the, you're right. Because the 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 the, the uh, Peyton Place scenes do feel very much like a soap opera, and the biker scenes yep. do feel so like a Christopher Guest film uh, gone horribly, horribly, horribly wrong. <laughs> exactly, Christopher Guest film gone wrong. There you go. That should have been the quote on the poster. Yeah, it was all just, you know. This was back before, before they found good drugs. The, the genetically engineered hybrid stuff. <laughs> go ahead. But okay. Oh, dear God. Okay. Fascinating, irritating thing for this crap. Okay, I'll go first on this. The fascinating thing for me was this cast. I mean, seriously, it's like you have got some amazing actors in this doing horrible, horrible work all around. I mean, it's it's... Nobody in this film who you think it, who you, you may have respect for after this, you may lose a few respect points for a lot of these people because everybody is truly just atrocious in this film. And here's my irritating thing about Rebel Rousers. I enjoyed it. It is a horrible freaking film, but okay, I have never been one to get into the so bad it's good genre. I fucking hate the room. I fucking hate Pandemic with a livid breathing passion, but that is well known to, to longtime listeners. I don't get so bad it's good movies, but after watching this, you understand now. You and I completely agree with you. I'm in, I'm in the same spot. I mean, pe people who've read uh, Better Living to Bad Movies or, or 
the stuff I've written a world of crap will I get that from them those oh you must love this movie it's terrible you must love so bad it's good I I I do not I consider it useful fodder but it's it's nothing that I enjoy recreationally but I do love so weird it's good like why why did they take Peyton Place and try to stuff it turducken style into Easy Rider what the hell were they thinking why did anyone think this would this would be a good idea and why were these actors why did they agree especially when clearly it, it wasn't the script that attracted them if there even was one so what how do things like this happen those are unsolved mysteries that just are crying out for robert stack to show up <laughs> i i i did i i cannot recommend this film in any way shape or form except except as a possible curiosity sake like if you want to see some really good actors slumming beyond all known rational belief then yeah hunt this one down it's available on youtube but let us um, suffer for you on this one <laughs> i went into it with zero expectations and and they were fulfilled. Exactly. I mean, I I, I laughed <laughs> a lot in this movie. I mean, like D- D- Diane Ladd eating her hand, Cameron Mac and uh, Cameron Mac. God damn it, Cameron Mitchell, Santa from Space Mutiny, wandering around, you know, trying to get some help with this. Please help me. At the end, it's hysterical. The Mexicans who weren't Mexicans. I mean, everything about this movie just made me giggle. And I feel bad that I was enjoying myself because I don't like watching bad films except for the show. I think I'm on Earth X now. You know what? I realize something now. While I, I, this just struck me. Again, while I don't agree with it, I get Ed Wood. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. But the dialogue, because it was either inaudible or it was just utterly pedestrian. It didn't have that that loony, loopy, ornate quality that Ed Wood stuck because Ed Wood overwrote everything. Okay, that I will give you. No, that is no, that is very true. I will give you that. I was about to say what makes it easier to watch is that unlike an Ed Wood film where you'd have a couple of okay actors and then a lot of real tinnered ones. That's actually more fun than watching people you know are talented just die. I don't know. I was giggling insanely at Diane Ladd eating her hand. That silent moment, I I could not stop laughing at that. Or Cameron, I'm sorry, the beatdown that Cameron Mitchell beat down that he Cameron gets it's just it is it is absolutely freaking hysterical I mean as bad and as as obnoxious as bad as this film is it was entertaining to watch all right and I and I feel Uh, bad that I feel that way so it it irritates the hell out of me Uh, your turn Scott fascinating thing about this movie is try to guess the motives for the actors and why they agreed to do it now some of them just it was a paycheck and jack nicholson's career was kind of spiraling into the toilet at that point and he was already thinking about making the transition into writing and directing it wasn't until he he had that freak success with the cameo in easy rider that he really became a star uh he was he was definitely on the downslope so i get why he's in it I also get why Bruce Dern's in it, because Bruce Dern is trying desperately in this movie, and you can watch it in real time, to change his image. He is trying to play a good guy in this. He is absolutely sincere in his friendliness and earnestness and and desire to help Diane. He's clearly trying to be a voice of reason, you know, a, a guy who's, again, made some bad life choices, but it basically is good at heart. And the thing is, I didn't really buy it. It's not that he can't play good guys. 
but I buy him more as people who think they're decent, but are confronted with a choice that shows just how dark inside they are. Like, for instance, I didn't really enjoy him in the early parts of The Incredible Two-Headed Transplant, where he's the doctor. Oh, right. Oh, God. He actually gets blown off the screen by Casey Kasem. It's a sad thing to say. I think probably the best performance where he's where he embodies both those things is, as you mentioned, Silent Running, because he's a decent guy and he he has the best of intentions and perfectly good motives for everything he does, even though he commits murder and theft and sabotage. He has a reason for it, but he's alone in space and kind of going insane because his robots are mute and can't make fun of movies with him. So... But he's basically a decent guy. He's not like the character you played in The Cowboys, a charming psychopath, uh, charming right up until the moment when he shoots you. But uh, I think he wanted this film to show a different side of himself. He was ostensibly the lead, or at least he he was at least the the co-leading man. And he was trying so hard to be a good guy that there was no darkness or texture in the character, which I know he can play because he's played a thousand times. So that made it a weird performance to what it was utterly fascinating for me to watch trying to figure out what do you think you're doing how do you think this is coming off no one else really got much screen time or or time to shine i mean harry dean stanton has a few scenes but he doesn't really have any dialogue nothing he says is memorable a lot of it's just spoken over by other people or he speaks over other people so you don't know what the hell anyone's saying cameron mitchell he never struck me as a guy who was particularly picky about his roles. And I mean, this was years before Frankenstein Island was even a uh, glimmer in Jerry Warren's eye, but you could sort of look at Cameron's performance in this movie and you could, you could see a Frankenstein Island in his future. Uh, Diane Ladd really wasn't anybody at the time. She had some credits. She, she, it wasn't until she got that breakout supporting role and Alice doesn't live her anymore that right. she really got on the map. So that doesn't mystify me. I mean, and it doesn't mystify me that the movie was made because every movie's made to make money. What mystifies me is why, why they wanted to make these two movies into one movie. That will always confuse and baffle me. And it's almost like if somebody said, we're putting out a Blu-ray of Rebel Rousers with a commentary track, I would maybe buy that just to hear them answer those questions. Uh, irritating. Where do I start? Where do I stop once I start? I everything we we mentioned everything was there like the the fake Latino people and the where the hell does this take place? Why is there an ocean in the middle of Arizona? And the whole the idea of the wacky rapists was very depressing. The wacky rapist. The whole idea of the wacky rapists. Why did they keep having the same argument that goes in circles and never gets resolved? And they have a time. Well, I know why because they only wrote the one argument and they just decided to reprise it like a song in the second act of a musical. The whole thing, the whole thing irritated me, but not irritated me enough to really make it make me mad because the irritation was part and parcel with the rest of the what the fuck. So really, it's all bad, but it didn't hurt. None of it stuck. Some movies like it's walking through poison oak. You know, you itch and have a rash for days. Right. It's like stubbing your toe. It's like, ah, crap. And then it's over. There you go. Cue the winged serpent. Two thumbs up. Long story short, watch Q. And on that note. Thank you for joining Jeff and I for this nonsense. We will be back in one week or less with a new movie crew to talk about Joker. And until then, don't be a stranger. Just be strange. You have seen this incident based on sworn testimony. Can you prove that it didn't happen? God help us in the future. <laughs> <laughs>